Welcome to the IPv6 Buzz podcast, where we dare to dive into the 128-bit address space wormhole. Hey, there's a quick reminder. Sponsorship opportunities are available for IPv6 Buzz and the other Packet Pusher podcast shows. If you're interested, uh, you can go to packetpushers.net slash sponsorship for details. Uh, we really want to hear about v6 stuff. It's coming up more and more in terms of a bunch of different products. And so if you've got something interesting, come join us on the IPv6 Buzz, and we'd love to have you sponsor and hear all about what you're up to. I'm Ed Horley with my co-host Tom Coffey and Scott Hogue, and today we're going to be talking about the nine-year anniversary of the World IPv6 launch, which was back on June 6, 2012, and then also uh, a little bit maybe about the 10-year anniversary of the World IPv6 Day, which was June 8th. And we're going to do all this with our guest, Tim Martin, who's actually with Hexabill, formerly with Cisco. And, um, you know, we wanted to jump in and just sort of talk about that. And in addition, I guess technically, <laughs> this is our, I think guys, this is our three-year anniversary for the show too, right? It's, uh, we, we launched on, on June 6, uh, 2018, I think, right? You know, I guess congrats to us for doing this for three years. And, uh, you know, thanks to all the listeners for actually listening in for three years. Uh, you're, you've been uh, very kind to us and, and sticking around. So we appreciate that. <laughs> but I mean, let's, I think the thing to talk to Tim about is, is really, you know, how the landscapes changed around, around V6. Uh, in addition, one of the reasons Tim is back with us uh, for this is because he was actually our first guest <laughs> on the podcast. So welcome back. You're our first returning guest ever, Tim, <laughs> from the podcast show. Well, thanks for having me, fellas. I, I, I remember three years ago, I enjoyed the show very much and I've been listening 76 recordings since then, so. Yeah, not too bad of a run. Yeah, you guys have done a great job with it. Yeah, thanks. Well, you know, I mean, let's let's talk a little bit of World V6 launch day, which was nine years ago now, which is sort of hard to believe because we were all around, you know, working on V6 back then, and it was sort of like a, it's it's hard to believe it's been that long. But what what do you see as the landscape change for V6, you know, since then? Sure. I, you know, I I always like to roll the tape t a year prior, right when we did. World IPv6 Day, Google, Yahoo, Facebook, Limelight, amongst many others, lit up IPv6 for a 24-hour period to test the viability of IPv6. Well, nothing really broke. There were very few hiccups, right? And from that lesson, we then set forth a plan for the infamous day that you had mentioned, 6 June 2012, in which the global internet turned on IPv6 for good. Now, day after that event, looking at the traffic going to Google, it measured just under a half a percent of the global traffic. And I remember sitting around talking with colleagues and peers and, and perhaps Scott and Ed, you were part of these conversations as well. Uh, we were thinking, you know, we could get 10% adoption globally by 2020, and that would be a great milestone. I think there was a mix of two camps back then. I think there was a camp that said, we're going to see worldwide adoption pick up and accelerate at this a phenomenal rate, right? Like they were like, yeah, it's going to be like two, three years, and we're going to see very, very large adoption rate very quickly. It's going to be super fast. And then there was... I think uh, another camp that was like, we're going to be pragmatic about this. It's going to be a lot slower roll than, than we anticipate. And uh, I, I think we all realized that the uh, slow roll was what was what happened. But I mean, you know, what's I haven't looked recently, but I, mean, I think the worldwide adoption rates are, you know, north of 30 percent for, you know, global. 
Um, and I think in North America, we're, you know, we always seem to bounce around between like, you know, whatever, 45, 50% or something like that for, for the United States. Uh, I don't know what Canada is at recently. I think probably above 30% now or something. So I, I think the numbers indicate that it's just slow and steady growth that's been happening since World V6 launch day. And, uh, and, and, I, and I don't anticipate that changing, but I don't know how everyone else feels about that if they're in, interpreted differently than me. Yeah, back in those early days, like before, you know, 2012 or in that range, IPv6 seemed to be doubling every year. It went from a quarter of a percent to half a percent, half a percent to one percent. And I was thinking, okay, this is this doubling every year that we'll see. And then it could really accelerate and it could have that tipping point effect that we've talked about. But you're right. It, it ended up the curve kind of flattened a little bit. Um, it, it was more difficult for service providers to get it ubiquitously deployed to their you know, broadband subscribers. There were a lot of things that needed to be upgraded for mobile providers. Um, cloud wasn't as didn't adopt IPv6 as quickly. So and it wasn't on by default, like many of the CDNs had turned it on for for their you know service customers. Um, so, yeah, so it kind of grew at a slowish pace. Although, you know, it depends on where you measure, right? It's some yep. countries that, yeah, yeah. you know, in a, in a much larger or, you know, country with many ISPs and a lot of competition, it would take a lot of work by a lot of service providers to upgrade, you know, millions of subscribers. But in a in a smallish country that maybe is just an island and maybe only has one, one service provider, they could go from... 10% v6 to 80% v6 on a weekend once that one service provider turned up IPv6 for that, you know, small island in the ocean, you know, and so they could have a dramatic percentage shift for just because it was a smaller number of ISPs, smaller population of subscribers, maybe more ubiquitous CPE, you know. Yeah, more, so a little it bit depends more on what you measure. Yeah, mm -hmm. more more standardized, and I think that the other thing, to, you know, maybe Tim can correct me on this one, because he had a little bit more global footprint around V6 for speaking and presenting and talking through it. But uh, I think one of the interesting things for it is, is in the early days of measurement, there were a lot of countries that were bouncing up and down on the list, uh, you know, much more frequently in terms of like leapfrogging ahead, and then you know the next one sort of jumping ahead. But they were all, you know small impact by, you know, large organization sort of thing. Um, and I think that's slowed down tremendously. I think you have much larger organizations who are getting more, you know, structured deployments out. And so their numbers are starting to, to catch up and probably having a bigger footprint impact, but I don't, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's, and, and this just sort of my gut feeling about where things are at, but I, I think it's, that's a big change compared to when things were first launching. Like you had all the big, big players, but then you had a lot of other, you know, mid-tier and, and smaller folks, and it's sort of like they could have big impact very quickly in a small demographic, like you mentioned. Tim, what do you what do you think on the early stages for for way back on launch day? I mean, how, you know, what's your gut feeling for what's changed then versus what we're dealing with today? I mean, do you have yeah. any really hard opinions about that, or you're just sort of like, nope, we just sort of we just sort of meandered along, and here we are. <laughs> no, no, I believe that there were things that helped us get those gains in those early years. And to me, it was a lot of the fine tuning in the RFCs coming out of the IETF. And if we go way back to the early days of IPv6, and, and, and I'm not going all the way back, but I'll say right around that 2005 era, that's when the 
federal government, U.S. federal government, got, kind of got busy looking at IPv6 and saying, we better get our act together and start putting a plan in place. And at that time, I would submit that the protocol was not ready for prime time. The level and number of RFCs that we added to the V6 protocol from 2005 to roughly 2011 significantly improved the performance of that protocol to where we were getting it ready for production deployment. I know others may argue that, oh, it was ready, but uh, it really wasn't. You know, there were a lot of things missing. So then, Ed, the question you ask is, what kind of milestones have happened since launch? And with that RFC mindset, I'm going right out to happy eyeballs. That was one of the first RFCs that really made a dent and an impact on the deployment of IPv6. Because we began to realize that without happy eyeballs, the user experience was absolutely horrible and they always blamed v6, when in reality, it was just poor plumbing in most cases. And happy eyeballs did great to fix that problem. Next, you have 6724. Ed, I know this is one of your favorites, source address selection. Right. This made things on the OSs a lot smoother and easier for deployment. 7381, enterprise guidelines. For the first time, we have some guidance that we're giving to enterprises about the deployment of IPv6. 8106, when we finally add DNS to the RA, and I know you guys have hashed this out <laughs> over the, on the Buzz podcast a number of times, right? Uh, Slack versus DHCP, which way to go, which does what? Adding DNS to the router advertisement really did make and simplify things that allowed for greater and wider deployments. And I would be remiss if I didn't call out RFC 8200. In 2017, at the ripe age of 20, it might've been 19 years, we finally decided that IPv6 was no longer a draft and we made it a standard. Yeah. And, and for anyone who hasn't had the experience of, of going to a training session with Tim, <laughs> he knows his RFCs really well. <laughs> so, I mean, it, I, I agree with you. I think Happy Eyeballs was transformative for, for V6 adoption. I, I think that was a major milestone for, for what was going on there. It's it both a plus and a minus. I mean, we've talked to Andrew and Dan in the past about their feelings about, you know, contributing that, that RFC out there, but definitely from an adoption standpoint, it really changed the map. Uh, I think that I would hundred percent agree with you that that was like a huge significant change. And then I agree, you know, the most recent one with, with the uh, 8106 really changed the operational landscape, I suppose, of giving flexibility back to the operator versus the fourth set of decisions that are going on today around Slack versus DHCP uh, V6. I, I, you know, I don't know. I'm Scott, Tom, you guys sort of similar feelings around the milestone side? Yeah, definitely. I mean, deprecating six to four Teredo tunnels, you know, getting Isotap. rid of... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, get rid um, of Isotap. <laughs> Isotap runs inside of an enterprise, but not over the internet, so it may not have... I just want it to um, go away. That's implications. all I'm saying. Yeah, I want it to go away. You're right. Um, but yeah, but then Microsoft taking those things that they put into their operating system, like Teredo and Isotap, built in by default, and then deprecating them. And now when you look at, you know, modern Windows 10, you know, creators updates or server 2019, those don't exist anymore, which is great. Um, but then other, you know, host operating systems, you know, deprecating those and 
following the standards to, you know, demote those. And then you quickly saw, you know, if you look at the Google IPv6 statistics chart, you, you quickly saw after that, that those dynamic tunneling techniques, that green line goes to the bottom and sticks to zero for the last decade. So yeah. that's been an improvement. I think we can take those down now. <laughs> There's a public plea for let's get rid of that. We, we don't need to look at it anymore. Yeah. Uh, also, you know, just so some, you can just you get can rid of the routers too. <laughs> be a good yeah. Thing. yeah. But as far as the the ITF goes and RFCs and you know those are all like landmark and critical like flag posts for IPv6 adoption and, and creating a you know the kind of guidance and and framework that that makes it safer and makes it feel you know more comfortable because you you've got some. Uh, you know, some, some really solid behavior that, that in the past you just you know, had variances on and happy eyeballs, obviously probably the biggest example of that. Um, but then the flip side of that, I guess, is that the, the ITF is out there solving a lot of problems, like, especially in the enterprise space, they're solving a lot of problems that enterprises don't have, or, you know, just don't like privacy as an example. And, and the way that, uh, that host addresses happen, the way that, uh, uh, host addresses are configured in IPv6 and, things like stable Slack and, you know, in an enterprise environment, it, it's not as if there's no use case for that at all, but it, it's definitely, you know, an environment that's, that operationally has been really dragged along by the DHCP model. And, and so, you know, how much of that, how much of that churn in the ITF related to maintaining privacy on the IPv6 side and what host addresses look like as a result of that, those discussions and, and, and that, uh, that engineering process, like, does that does that actually help or hinder enterprise adoption? Um, you know, and if we could like a, a more specific example of that is you know one vendor deciding that oh well we're just not going to support DHCPv6 and you know so the standards are all there but but again an operational like Microsoft doing the right thing deprecating ISATAP and Teredo versus another vendor say doing something that's a little more problematic and deciding that they're just going to pretend like an entire operational model for host address assignment doesn't exist. Um, so, you know, I don't know, it's kind of like a mixed bag, both on the vendor side and the IETF side in that, if you look at those, those issues. You know, I think in that particular case, I'll go out on a limb and say for myself, I've never encountered an enterprise deployment where it wasn't an issue. In other words, DHCPv6 is the model of the enterprise. They, everyone I've ever worked with has, you know, tried to shoehorn a DHCPv6 solution and and ends up having to you know do some workarounds so uh, i see it almost every time uh, probably 95 percent of the customers i've engaged with it's an issue that needs to be addressed mm -hmm. there are some other milestones though gentlemen that came out uh, since the launch that i think are important to the proliferation of ipv6 on a global scale and of course i'm going to start right here in the u.s uh, uh, tip my hat toward T-Mobile and 464XLAT and their ability to deploy V6 only to the handset. Uh, Comcast for being able to get 36 million cable modems up on IPv6. Facebook putting an entire data center IPv6 only, and that's not a small data center, as most folks are aware. The U.S. federal government in November 2020 they've put out uh, an updated mandate for IPv6 only. I mean, this really does drive innovation and we need to think back to the roots of the internet protocol. They came out of the US federal government. So again, I, I tip my hat to them for 
continuing to lead in the internet protocol. And then heading around the world, uh, you have to call out Reliance Geo. I mean, it's not just a darling business case there. And if you haven't studied that business case, it's fascinating. But they came out with a clean sheet of paper and they said there's only one way to do it, IPv6. I, I agree with all of them. I, I definitely think that's that's part of it. I think one some of the other significant milestones was was that maybe we left off the list. Uh, in addition, I'll just bring them up is is the rundown of V4. That's right? <laughs> always not having any more V4 was was a big deal. So what was it? Was it 2015 that Aaron drove to to zero for V4 allocations and basically said that's it, we're done. You don't get any V4. It goes it goes to you know whatever the aftermarket for going and finding it and and, and I mean the prices are pretty significantly larger uh, on a on a cost per IP now than versus way back in 2015 when things ran out. Um, so I think that was another big major milestone that was sort of pushed adoption forward in terms of you know and maybe it was I think the panic run out was the end of 2018 or 2019 when Comcast bought like the got like the last large allocation out of Aaron. Uh, and and then everything else was much smaller, much smaller blocks. I don't know. I mean, th would that be an additional one? I think you guys. Sure. Yeah, I agree with all yours. I, I think they're good. I, I have a little something for Scott on this as well, right? Because I don't, don't want to leave out security because we we've had some incredible strides in security since launch, right? We we got the devil's discard for those who aren't familiar with RSC six 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 six. Right, it, it creates prefix 0100 colon colon slash 64 as a route to black hole. Mm -hmm. uh, clearly an effective security tool that, that has been deployed. We cleaned up some of our fragmentation challenges in 7112, requiring the upper layer protocol to be in the first fragment of any IPv6 fragmented stream. And gosh, fellas, even Send got an update later in, <laughs> in 2017. Uh, Gosh, no, let's not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I suspect, Scott, you might uh, have. We still, have uh, we still have fragmentation issues, just saying. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> listen, to, listen to our show with Jeff Houston. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, let's, let's talk about what, what we have to look forward to, you know, sort of what, what, what major changes do we feel like are, are still yet to come? Because, I mean, maybe we can... Uh, navel gaze a little bit or pontificate a little bit for what's going to happen in the future or what we think is going to be important for major changes that still need to happen for v6 i mean is there i guess technically we haven't have we broached the you know i think a big one would be when the overall internet traffic volume or or or, or what's being reported is is on average uh, greater than 50 percent. that means that more than 50 percent of the internet's you know on v6 now so we can, I guess we could truly say the majority of internet traffic is V6. I, I, I think that would be a huge major change, right? Yeah. And then V4 is in the, you know, the minority yes. at that point. Mm -hmm. But I mean, you could see, you know, greater V4 scarcity causing, you know, more performance problems with IPv4, the more and more NATs right. that enterprises have to perpetuate to keep building out infrastructure, all, all the different, you know, and particularly when they move to hybrid or there's mergers and acquisitions, the effort required, you know, the pain of IPv4 <laughs> needs to surpass the effort to deploy IPv6. <laughs> so once that occurs, you know, V4 becomes more painful. There's more and more address overlaps. There's effort put towards renumbering. 
there's performance issues, you know, because you're going through three to five different NATs, you know, in a hybrid cloud, you know, environment Mm -hmm. or or things like that. Then you realize, oh, now there's there's benefits. There's a better way to do things. Let's (laughs) wait. Let's not waste time on IPv4. Let's not solve the address overlaps. Let's deploy IPv6 fresh and use that, you know, so that could be one. I would say also, you know, look forward to solving multi-homing challenges so that it makes it easy for <laughs> small, medium businesses yeah, to big adopt IPv6, but avoid vendor lock-in of provider assigned addresses. Yeah, 100% agree with that one. I don't know, I mean, Tim, what's on your list? What's what's the big, what major changes are you like, hey, we still need to see this before we're, we're going to see, we're going to see like great improvement of adoption or great improvement around the protocol or things that you have on a, on a short wish, wish list of like, I wish this stuff was, was happening for V6. You know, I, I go back to the ever expanding innovation of devices that are going to be needing connectivity. We, we talk about 5G and IoT. And if you look at the expansion of 4G, when it hit the market, it was, it was absolutely huge. And the innovation that we received with 4G and the amount of information we can have on our devices increased exponentially. And 5G has that same promise, right? Not just in terms of bandwidth and performance, but innovation, the ability to think of something new, a business need that, that can be executed across a 5G network. And those are going to be built on IPv6. IoT is going to be built with IPv6. It, it only makes sense. A six low pan, the work that they're doing in there. Right. And, and threat and threat is all v6 so if you're if yep. you're playing with threat at all you're you're that's all v6 that you're working on there right so i, I think that's where you're going to see some innovation you're going to see uh, uh, just a massive amount of devices needing connectivity and people often say well i don't really want to connect that stuff to the internet you, you got to go back to 4864 and and uh uh, for those who, who don't recall that, that RFC is about a secure local network, right? And we can do this without NAT, people. It's not that hard. Uh, we currently have 22 billion devices connected on the global internet, like 22.5 billion. We effectively have 3.2 billion V4 addresses. Theoretically, it's 4.3, but you know, it's probably more around 3 billion addresses that are actually deployed just due to the reservations and the the way we account for networks and broadcasts in the v4 protocol so we're almost 8x oversubscribed where is the tipping point is it 10x you know when we get to 32 billion is it are we really going to be at 50 billion devices and not see ipv6 as the dominant protocol i i would speculate now that as we continue to add we have no choice but to go to a protocol that was designed to, oh, here we go, last forever. <laughs> well, I think I, uh, I think it's a good point. I, I do think the engineering experiment with V4 will go on far longer than any of us anticipated. So maybe they'll try and push that 50 billion number <laughs> and see when it falls over. I, I, I don't think there's any, uh, anyone has any expectation that the V4 side will go away. So I think we're all pretty much on the same same page for that. It's just a matter of how V4 will be utilized. Um, and I think, you know, it'll be some, something, at least in my mind's eye, it'll be something like a IPv4 as a service running over, v, over V6. I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but 
Mm -hmm. I feel like that long-term goal is probably looking more like that so that those resources that still have V4 dependencies can still continue to operate, but the rest of the network will start to move to, to V6 as, as operationally it's more desirable to, to and, and you certainly aren't solving your address problem by running dual stack, right? That doesn't help you. Uh, the address to, you know, just not having enough addresses available doesn't help you to run dual stack. So going single stack with V6 becomes easier and it becomes easier from an operational model too, but obviously you need to support V4 in the right way. So it's coming up with those coming up with those operational and guidance and principles and how do, how do we do all of this sort of stuff that I think is still missing. And I think that's one of the things that will happen more innovation wise in the, in the, in the near future. Yeah. So, you know, the, here we're coming full circle, you know, back in 2003, host operating systems preferred V6 over V4. Then we had happy eyeballs to help solve the dual stack mm -hmm. behavior. Yeah. In the future, in the late stage, we're going to go back kind of like the way Apple iOS is now. We're going to give go back to preferring V6 over V4 in host operating systems in the future. Yes. Yeah, we'll still have them support tool. They'll still use V4, but they're going to give V6 a head start on connections. Or it'll be an adjustment of the happy eyeballs algorithm. I'll, I'll have to write my amendment for <laughs> a new RFC for 6724 that puts, puts IPv4 the v6 lowest first, precedent <laughs> v4, yeah drop that drop that down yeah so um so you could see change in host os behavior or things we put in very early on like common misbehavior against you know dns resolvers that mm -hmm. didn't know what a quad a record was so we yep. separate an a and a quad a record so now late stage you go back to doing a query for all or a query for any you do a 5a query where you query and, and uh, Cloudflare has written about this, you know, proposing, let's go back to the old way of doing things, query an A and a quad A record all in one query instead of having to separate them into two different. See, I, I have a different idea. I think we should just deprecate <laughs> an A record. There should not be no A records. Nah. <laughs> Filter A records out of V6 oh. transport. All A records go away. That will solve it. That'll get people yeah. converting over overnight. <laughs> and then you get the, yeah, and then you get the S flag and the RA that tells host OS is to be v6 only v6 and turn only. off v4 yep. we have the dhcp v6 option that or dhcp v4 option that indicates to hosts they should be v6 only yep yeah so, yeah so you'll start to see now late stage yeah where before we were tunneling islands of v4 v6 over an ocean of v4 we'll be doing the v4 as a service where we'll be tunneling islands of v4 over an ocean of v6 yeah, indeed. And we'll get better accountability and geo tracking along the way. A couple of things that often get left out of the conversation. Yeah, the creepy big brother stuff. Let's talk about that real quick. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's, well, there, there's there's use cases around both. I, I get it. But I think you can solve a lot of the um, I need some anonymity with with VPNs as an overlay on top. Right. So I think there's there's solutions to help get around that for what people consider sort of like I'm protected with NAT or with NAT to NAT. So you still need VPN services to protect you that way, even with NAT and V4. So I, I agree with you. It's it, the geolocation is helpful for, for really making sure that content's available to you in the best performant way. That's how I look at geolocation data as being the most useful, right? Yeah, like clients can flip their MAC address almost conti continuously. They can change their interface identifier, <laughs> their private IID, continuously to avoid <laughs> any kind of tracking. You would know what, you know, slash 64, the connection's coming from, mm -hmm. but you wouldn't know anything more than that. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think that geolocation goes hand in glove with 5G and IoT, right? Yeah, uh, yeah I agree. Yeah. You know, it's just going to be a cleaner deployment for the provider as well as any enterprise that's looking to those services. We still have cookies. <laughs> we still, yeah, totally. And there's other ways to track you. Uh, an address is, is is useful to a, to a point. I think the other part of the geolocation that's really impactful and important is is this is going to allow cloud providers to be able to make sure that they're doing the right stuff from from a scale out model basis for what they're providing, and I think that's that's super important, right? Um, and uh, and I think for as cloud adoption becomes uh, a much bigger part of what enterprises are doing, making sure that they're getting the right performant you know experience for the end user who's coming from home that may be going through a cloud provider becomes a harder and harder thing to do. And so having good geolocation data about where that sourcing is coming from allows them to make much better decisions about how to how to support what they're up to. So it's it's a sort of a, a, a combination of munging up the CDN and application services together for what the cloud providers are, are doing, but being able to subscribe to that almost like as a service in a cloud would be pretty awesome, right? I think I think that's sort of the things that I expect to see, you know, popping out of this. And it's really hard to have a clean geolocation database for V4 today, right? It's getting it's getting pretty messy. Uh, it's really hard because you're trying to represent, you know, with with carry grade NAT, it becomes harder and harder to really sort of define what's happening out there uh, from a demographic basis about what's going on. I guess I guess it can still pin it down to neighborhoods and things like that, but um, it's it's definitely going to get messier. Uh, yeah, V4 reputation data gets worse over time. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I don't know if V6 data, I imagine V6 data will get worse over time too, just because of, you know, bad actors and things like that. But but uh, we, you can't solve for that. You can't solve for that in V4 or V6, right? That's not a that's not something you're going to be able to solve easily you know, one way or the other. Well, didn't Belgium uh, solve for that with uh, legislation? Uh, I suppose, I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously you can, you can, legislate about about that sort of stuff but then you need an enforcement arm to go out and chase everyone who's doing that and do you have yeah. you know do you have the international agreements to be able to go chase someone in xyz country who's you know being a bad actor but actually operating out of your country right or and, just better you know source address filtering on the ipv6 yeah, edges think, yeah better um you know ingress egress filtering mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with you on that one. I, I think it's, I think this gives a rare opportunity for service providers to really clean up what they're doing at the edge, what they're mm -hmm. ingesting and how they're handling stuff across their backbone. So I, I do think there's a plus there for them um, if they take advantage of it, right? Well, I mean, uh, yeah, let's, let, let maybe let's pivot and talk about, you know, we, we sort of talked about what we think are, are is, is going to be coming and, and what's going on, but maybe we should talk a little bit about, you know, hey, what do we do today? Like, <laughs> How do we prepare for for V6 and what's the things that are going to be meaningful in terms of doing, um, doing stuff within our environment, what, what, what's within our control, what can we do to have impact besides just obviously going out and, and adopting V6 as quickly as possible. But you know, what are what do we think are the practical things that people should be scratching their head and thinking about? Well, you know, being a, a multi-protocol engineer for decades, I go right to the protocol, the networking professional today needs to understand the IPv6 protocol better than they do the legacy protocol. And that's saying something because a lot of the listeners are IPv4 experts. They understand the le legacy protocol. They've been routing and working with it for years and they've kind of kept, uh, uh, probably not your listeners, but <laughs> I suppose a lot of network professionals out there have kept IPv6 at, at arm's length. 
When I was teaching courses, traveling the world and teaching about the IPv6 protocol, and I would get to uh, talking about the headers and the fields, I would ask the often ask, you know, who knows what the identification offset and flags fields of the V4 header are used for? <laughs> yeah, we, we chuckled, but about 10% of the room could raise their hand. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there may even be some folks who go, well, wait a minute, I know what the, maybe I don't know what those things are used for. And, and this is my point. We f- have this legacy thinking, this legacy mindset that we're experts with the legacy protocol, but we may not understand the legacy protocol as well as we think we did. And then there's some good news on the IPv6 side, right? Because those fields are no longer present in the V6 header. They got moved to an extension header and has been much talked about <laughs> on, on this show and, and right. pretty much throughout the industry. All uh, right. Well, I mean, it, that, that, those are fantastic points. I mean, you know, it's uh, it's it's getting expertise around the protocol becomes a, a set of challenges. And I think I think people set the bar really high for themselves on that one, too. I don't know if you feel that way. T- also, Tim, that they feel like they have to know s- so much more about V6 than actually what it takes to actually deploy and run it. Um, so I think there's a fear factor of feeling like they have to know way more than and digging into. And no one was that way with V4, right? <laughs> They didn't feel right. like they had to dig into it that deeply in order to understand every single protocol attribute about V4 before they actually turned it on and deployed it in their environment <laughs> right? yep. compared yep. to IPX or something like that. But I don't know. I, it, maybe that's just an impression I have. No, I think, I think it's accurate. And I think, you know, I, I hear this uh, all the time, right? We have to check our legacy thinking at the door when it comes to IPv6. You literally get a clean sheet of paper with your IPv6 allocation. And I think the hardest thing for people to wrap their brains around when they get into address planning is they, they just immediately want to put IPv4 into their v6 space. That's, that's the very first thing people go to. And we have to get beyond that thinking. We have to recognize that we don't care about the v4 space. Our goal is to turn it off, right? We want to be v6 only. We want to operate a network on a single protocol. I, I think that's a huge, I, I think that's a huge point. And, and, and so I, for everyone who's listening, you know, I, I think we've emphasized this in past shows quite a bit, right, Tim, that it's, it, since you've listened, it's, it's one of those things where IPv4 thinking becomes a, a structural difficulty for, for many of the people that, that are going through and trying to, trying to get someplace with, with V6 adoption, right? And I think that's a big hurdle. It is. And, and I think a lot of people get wrapped around the axle with a slash 64, right? They just can't comprehend how large that is and how irrelevant it is. It doesn't matter if there's one or two hosts on a slash 64. They're, they're just as irrelevant as 200 hosts <laughs> relative to the amount of space that's available. Right. And I think that's a tough one for, for people to get over. So we, we have to do our jobs, I guess, and continue to educate and uh, to make sure people understand the protocol, that they understand we're not worried about host addresses. That's not even an issue. We could care less. We're With IPv6, we're focused on network counts. And yep. there's enough IPv6 address space that that's not an issue. We, yeah. we have more than enough networks. And so, yeah, just changing that mindset, Ed, I think that's, that's really one of the, the key factors to what we should be preparing for. 
Well, cool. Well, I mean, how, how can folks get involved then? How can folks sort of, you know, step up to the next thing for, for making some of this stuff happen? Well, now here's an interesting one. First off, participate. This podcast series is fabulous. And since we spent the entire last year in lockdown, and we're still effectively locked down, not quite as bad as we were a year ago, we, we haven't had any task force meetings, right? Uh, so in lieu of task force meetings, it's something like what you guys are doing that gets people involved. So I would encourage listeners to submit questions and or interesting ideas. Be involved right here on the IPv6 Buzzcast podcast. No, oh, we appreciate that. That's that, and and I'd, we definitely welcome listener questions. So if you if you have those or you have you're scratching your head and you got an idea about something, we'd love to hear about it and, and we'd love to be able to chat through it. Obviously, if it's patentable, keep it to yourself. No, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean, and and you're right. It's been super hard from a task force base. We used to all get together and see each other in person, you know. And, and get that opportunity to do that. And it's been uh, more and more infrequent. And obviously over the last year and a half, it's been it's been zero pretty much outside of seeing each other on, on Zoom occasionally. And I think even all the major, you know, industry events, you know, the ITF, everything else has moved virtual. I think you're going to continue to see some of that behavior going forward. So getting involved means, uh, you know, reaching out and, you know, Slack, Twitter, et cetera, to sort of reach out and ask for for interaction, I think, is, is sort of what my gut's telling me is where things are going. Yeah. I, and, and Tim, you've been doing this long enough now. Um, do you have any sort of words of wisdom to share about, about V6 adoption? I mean, you've been, you've been involved with the community for so long now. I mean, it's, it's, uh, sometimes you get jaded, but <laughs> I don't know if you have anything that you want to, the listeners to walk away with and be like, you know, Hey, that's a really good, good thing. I'm, I'm glad he mentioned it to us. Yeah, yeah, sure. So I, I'll, I'll, echo that IPv6 is a clean sheet of paper. You, you get a chance to actually architect an IP network from the beginning without any real limitations. I'll uh, go out on a limb again and say automation is here to help. Well, it's, it's coming, right? Automation is something that, that we need to keep our eye on. And, you know, guys, as always, I have a pet project and that is Eliminate shared layer two domains. <laughs> yeah. I, you, you, yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, you guys touched on it. You you actually talked about uh, islands of V4 over oceans of V6, right? You, so even if we have to maintain some layer two, well, let's put layer three down at the access and encapsulate what we must. But eliminating shared layer two domains also eliminates a ton of complexity. And with complexity comes operational challenge. You know, it's just, it's dead weight that we need to move beyond. Relative to IPv6, you got to build a plan that's not just dual stack, but has IPv6 only as the end game. Because that is where we're heading. I agree with all of those, yeah. yeah again, I'd like to give a shout out. Uh, there is a task force that has been meeting regularly in a virtual format, and that's the Fed V6 task force. It's predominantly the federal government. Uh, a few industry folks participate as well. They have been meeting. They have been pretty aggressive to build a plan that is IPv6 as the end game. Unlike V6, we've run out of space for this podcast. Thanks to today's guest, Tim Martin, as our first 
repeat guest too. <laughs> so how can the audience follow you on the internet? Well, on Twitter, I'm backcountry skier, no vowels. It's the best place. I do a lot of updates on Twitter uh, that are relevant to IPv6. And as always, I promise you'll never know what I ate for lunch. <laughs> yeah, you can follow Tim. Uh, you, you can probably find him on LinkedIn too, if you really, if you really feel like you need to reach out. Um, you can reach the IPv6 Buzz podcast on Twitter. It's at IPv6 Buzz. You can also hit up each one of us on Twitter. Uh, Tom is at IPv6 Tom. Scott is at Scott Hogue, and I'm at E Horley. Thanks for listening to the IPv6 Buzz. You can find us on the Packet Pushers or any of your favorite podcast apps. Just search for IPv6 Buzz. If you like the show, please give us a rating on iTunes. Hopefully you're listening on Spotify too. And, and if you like the podcast, we really recommend you check out Heavy Networking, Day 2 Cloud, and the Network Break podcast. They're, it's just fantastic, great content over at uh, PacketPushers.net. Uh, so long and until next time, we'll see you on the internet. The IPv6 internet, that is. Thanks for listening to IPv6 Buzz, a podcast devoted to truth, justice, and 128 bits of address space. IPv6.